This is a podcast from SPH Radio. In this episode, we're talking to a fish vet. Dr. Fred Chua has been a vet since 1987. He has a spectrum of vet-related experience, from the military to government sectors, and also heading the Aquatic Animal Health section of the AVA. And he also was the curator of Underwater World Singapore. So let's find out if you should take Aaron the Arowana to Dr. Chua when you see it sick, or can you take it to any old vet? Before that though, best to get the actual name of what he does, instead of just calling him a fish vet. Dr. Fred's clinic is the All Pets and Aqualife Clinic. Dr. Fred, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Harvey. So, fish vet. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That was what I was supposed to call you, but I'm sure there's a more technical and official term. I think we tend to be called aquatic vets. And this includes what sort of species? Not just fish, I'm sure. No, we do all the way from prawns to fish. And fish, you have freshwater, you have marine, you have food fish, you have ornamental fish, even lobsters. And then we go up to marine mammals, that's dolphins and sea lions, turtles and terrapins. We recently learned those are also reptiles. So a quick chat around the office. Obviously, the thing that came up the most was, oh, fish vet, how do you do CPR on a fish? <laughs> I'm sure okay. you get that question a lot. Uh, we do. Well, uh, if a fish presents to you and is already requiring CPR, often it ends up as a post-mortem. Oh, dear. I know, it sounds pretty morbid. On the pond side, basically fish need oxygen, but the oxygen comes through the water medium, so you have to flush well-oxygenated water through the gills. Of course, you've got to bring it out of an environment which is toxic. And usually they need CPR because they were in an environment that was toxic. So following the basic instructions. So it's not how we would assume it was for mammals who breathe oxygenated air. Yeah. So fish have gills and the gills perform the same function as um, lungs. lungs. They basically have to get water rich in oxygen to flush through, perfuse through the gills in order to, to survive. So none of that chest pumping, let me blow air into your mouth business. <laughs> no, although I have seen people do that. I don't oh, know dear. why. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question that came up too. What do I do with my sick arowana? Ah, okay. And then most of us were saying, oh, pump its chest and blow water into its face. <laughs> Not yeah. a good idea. No. Arowanas, you can't bring them to the vet easily, obviously, because they are very feisty. They can damage themselves. We would normally make sure there's in good water. There is a point of no return in many fish that we see, and that's when they flip upside down. So when they do that, it's usually not a very good situation. But generally speaking, just pumping good water uh, through the gills. In the fish farms, or if you have access to a fish shop nearby, you could get it to the fish shop or the clinic and uh, put it in a bag, saturate the bag with oxygen, with one third of water, but the rest of it with oxygen. And that's how they transport fish. So that gives the water a very high concentration of oxygen. Sometimes the fish recovers. Uh, of course, you know, with any situation, you need to find out what the underlying problem is before you attempt to find a solution. Dr. Fred, how did the expertise with aquatic mammals or aquatic life and fish as well come into play because you started out as what we might call a regular vet. <laughs> you have a love for dogs and yeah. then suddenly there were fish. <laughs> yeah. Do you want the long or short story? We have time. Let's go okay. with the long story. <laughs> All right. 
uh, you asked in your series of questions if vet science was my plan A and if I had a plan B. Well, vet was plan X because huh? yeah, <laughs> I know that far know. down the alphabet. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> You know, um, I was brought up in a family where both parents wanted at least one child to be a doctor. Oh, I, I know I was how that medic- feels. Oh, okay. Zero though from this family, <laughs> unfortunately. Sorry, mom well, and dad. <laughs> I was a medical reject. They called me for an interview and somehow the panel in NUS decided that I wouldn't be the doctor that they... they uh, wanted to train. Yeah. This human doctor, you mean? Yeah. yeah okay. Of humans. So, obviously, I was quite distressed. So were my parents. Oh, dear. A couple of days after the interview, I had a call and they asked me, oh, come for an interview because we want to offer you a scholarship to do veterinary medicine. Um, How fortuitous you know, or a yeah, yeah. change of fate, so to speak. I know. It was always uh, something out of reach because at that time to do vet science, you really needed to go overseas. Mm. And my parents obviously couldn't afford it. And plus, I was in the army and having a scholarship meant that you could disrupt from the army for a couple of years. Oh dear. Should we be added. admitting that, Dr. Fern? <laughs> <laughs> it was just a very pragmatic thing. I went for the interview and uh, they offered me a scholarship to do veterinary medicine in Melbourne, which I did. And that time, there was a growing pig industry and it was meant to come back from the scholarship. It would have a bond to serve the government and uh, serve supporting the piggery industry in Singapore. But halfway through the course, they sort of squashed the whole pig industry because they reckoned pigs would generate too much waste and smell Mm. for our island. And um, I was left wondering what I would do. Anyway, I came back into, back into the army after the course. And I was fortunate enough to have uh, served some time with the army dog unit and with the medical centers. So it was just thoroughly enjoyable. Because you already uh, liked dogs, right, at that point? Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. <clears throat> My father had a small backyard breeding kennel. He bred Dobermans. So uh, as kids, we would be very busy cleaning every oh. morning. Scoop and, uh, poop duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, yep. And then before school, there was a good experience. After the army, I had to go back into government service, which was PPD, Primary Production Department. Uh, and I served for a little bit of time in the Kampong Java Animal Infirmary. That closed down because it was deemed to compete with the private sector. So I was looking for any clinical position which might turn up. Uh, I didn't want to you know, be behind a desk or work in an abattoir or in, just stuck in a lab. They offered me a, another position in fisheries, and it was as a fish vet. And of course, I knew nothing about fish, although I kept fish as a child. And that, so parts uh, of the veterinary science course may not be treating fish? I think we had two lectures, huh? and I okay. missed one. <laughs> and I attended only one, yeah. Oh, so. Dr. Fred, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I'm sorry it's not the story you want to know, <laughs> but um, I just that's how it is. question your diligence as a student. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that came with a, another scholarship, and that was to UK in Stirling. And I went for a year and enjoyed every moment of it. So it was a matter of me not uh, making the choice initially, but learning to love it as I went along. Mm. Yeah. And of course, you needed to upskill in order to do the job. Yeah. So that was fun. It was a year in Stirling. 
and uh, came back with a, a specialization degree. I started my work yes, as a fish vet in the government service, but I left the government service after nine years. And then I worked in underwater world as curator. Uh, as a curator, you're not uh, really a vet. You, you design you know, tanks and exhibits. But, but I of also... course, they'd need somebody with expertise in order to yeah, keep guess... the wildlife there happy and healthy. Yeah, so mm. there was sort of a two jobs in one, which was totally enjoyable. I was always the envy of my, my friends because a business trip would be a diving trip in Japan or wow. something like that. It was, mm. a, it was a beautiful, beautiful six years, yeah. But I decided I wanted to come out and be a, an aquatic vet. But I found how difficult it was just to work on fish and to serve fish industry. And I spent two years trying to make a living. It was difficult. I spent some time in Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, trying to do some consulting. It didn't work out. In fact, there were days when I, sp I spent the nights in my car in Malaysia, thinking how hungry I was. Oh, no. So I know all that. <laughs> and we have farmers over there who can't pay you. And they would say, okay, um, I'll pay you if I get a harvest from my prawn pond, and I'll pay you in stock. So what I'm going to do with one ton of prawns? <laughs> So. Cook it and eat it. Oh, no. <laughs> so I decided that in order to make a living, I would have to have a vet clinic, go back to Dawson Cats, which I love, and then build up the fish part of the practice. That's a myth we've debunked, though, Dr. Fred, that uh -huh. vets are rich and so... Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> was that plan not a well-laid one, so to speak? <laughs> well, I guess... Uh, I mean, I, I had a comfortable position in the government service and underwater world, but I felt I needed to throw myself into being an entrepreneur. No regrets. That okay. it's all kind of worked out. So what yes, though, yes. during that journey, uh, were some of the surprising things that came up as you learned more about aquatic life? Oh, well, initially our education was really to diagnose and treat schools of fish, farms of fish. If you are dealing with population medicine, you have a different mindset. You know, you're dealing with mass vaccinations and mass fish kills investigations, uh, investigation of water quality in, in whole river systems. But in private practice, I found it, I suppose, more rewarding to serve people who had expensive individual valuable, either expensive emotionally or in terms of value, the expensive koi, arowana. Because then I was forced to look into individual medicine, just like we would look at a dog or a cat and look at the different systems in play, the physiology uh, and how disease occurs. We had to do that for individual fish. And that became a really nice challenge and gave me a really nice insight into how we could then treat populations of fish. Mm. How though? The unit animal, the fish, you must understand the way disease develops in the fish, the underlying mm. causes of the disease, to better understand how to treat the entire population. So, you know, with the COVID crisis at the moment, uh, you can see how doctors treat and struggle through treatment of individual patients, but they also have to look broadly at the entire population and how to prevent disease spread. So we do that for fish as well. And understanding how disease develops in the livers of fish, in the gills, that helps us to better control disease in the entire population. Talk to us about whether or not you've ever questioned your choice to be a vet. 
I know it was sort of somewhat you were pushed along, if you will. Yeah. The plan was laid out for you, so to speak, as fate would have it. But how do you feel now? Well, I must admit that while being a vet, especially in the early years, I still dreamt, kind of envied friends of mine who became doctors because, well, I guess it was a childhood dream and it was hard to shake that off. But I was very blessed to be able to work with doctors in my, in my own work. In the army, I had a chance to work with uh, very good army doctors. And when I was in the private sector, when I am in the private sector, I consult for several institutions who work on, on animal models of disease, animal models of human disease, for example, cancers and heart failure. So I've been fortunate enough to get to know, rub shoulders with very clever clinicians and scientists in the medical field. So no regrets. Uh, I, I really have enjoyed my, my career thoroughly, every part of it. Any memorable cases? Willie the killer whale? Or... <laughs> <laughs> May I start from a dog? One of the most memorable things we did was to rescue a diamond ring from a dog's stomach. Oh, man. So, <laughs> I know. We x-rayed and what looked like obviously a diamond ring, uh, we had to scope it and rescue it. That was very rewarding because everybody in the family was happy. Without uh, surgery though, right? With a scope. We, we did right. a, mm. a gastroscope. Mm. Fished yeah. it out. Okay, great. Yeah. great. Another very rewarding time was when we were able to save a dolphin with, uh, with pneumonia. This dolphin had pneumonia and because dolphins have a very different lung and they, their lungs are very susceptible to pneumonia. Because they're mammals, right? They breathe mammals, air. And they don't breathe every two seconds like we do. Mm. They kind of hold their breath and when they do breathe, they need the air to be really clean. If they suffer stress, somehow they develop into pneumonias. But anyway, this dolphin had been treated with various antibiotics for quite a while and I managed to convince the uh, resident vet to nebulize it with mm. uh, F10, a product that I, I carried. And F10 is really a, a cleaning antiseptic. agent. Yeah, it's a cleaning agent, yeah. so it's antiseptic. So, and it worked. So, what could have cost thousands of dollars in antibiotic therapy cost just 50 cents. And the dolphins. Ooh, yeah, great. and they, they actually got better. You could literally see the lesions in the lung through x ray reduce in size over time. So, yeah, that was quite rewarding. Oh, and another one was when I had to remove a dive weight from a sand tiger shark. So this shark was swimming around, a diver dropped his weight belt and the weight came off the belt and the shark, being a visual feeder, swallowed it. So you could see oh, the yeah. shark swimming around with mm. a little oblong-shaped um, object <laughs> yeah. oh. from the stomach area. Initially tried to sedate the shark and retrieve it from the mouth. But when the shark started struggling, I thought, okay, I'm not going to lose my arm with this. So I decided call, to... call, Dr. Frank. <laughs> I know. So I decided to treat it like a dog and uh, operate on it. So I opened up the skin, abdominal muscles, got into the stomach and fished out the weight belt, closed it up. And yeah, a few weeks later, it got transported to Dubai in the aquarium. That was pretty cool. What do you think is the worst aspect of being a vet though, Dr. Fred? The thing you dread the most? They've all happened to me. Oh, man. <laughs> so I suppose um, these days we are quite weary and I suppose um, annoyed about keyboard warriors, people who criticize us without knowing the full story. Ah, because of social media and yeah, yeah, netizens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and those people who demand discounts or else they would put us on the social media. So they literally tell us that 
It's a challenging thing how vet clinics work. It's almost like you're expected to be a standalone hospital and have mm. everything and you don't get the bulk discounts that say human hospitals do, etc. Yeah. So it's all very challenging, I understand. Yeah, so um, dealing with people are the most challenging part. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> the animals, they are the passion. We, we try our very best, but you know, we, we can't save every, everything. Mm. And especially for fish, fish tend to hide the symptoms, even marine mammals. They pretend to be well, so that when they show themselves up to be unwell, it's often quite late in the day. It's difficult when you are starting with that situation and trying to save it. If you save it, it's good. But if you can't, then I remember in a farm in Malaysia, I was trying to save a farm's fish from a disease situation. And you have the entire river system, the farmers along the entire river system coming to have a listen. There's no way to save the situation. You either end up with a bad name, but if you don't do anything, that's also not... Uh... Still a bad name. <laughs> yeah, it's always uh, tricky. What keeps you going though? Uh, it's not the money. I suppose every vet has a desire to save an animal, to make a situation, whether it's a farmer or a hobbyist or an owner of a dog or a cat, make the life better. Even if it is providing pain management to a hopeless cancer patient, or even if, if it is euthanizing an animal that is in deep suffering and providing closure for the family. These, I think all vets will appreciate this, this ability to, to reach out. That's just a chance to be able to be in there and touch people in that way. I think that's important to us. So, of course, it is, the, the science is very interesting. It's, it's nothing quite so fabulous as being able to treat something and see the way it develops to recovery and seeing the entire, uh, well, saving the, at times, saving the day. <laughs> and uh, I remember once in the AVA, we encountered a, a new disease that was called the bankruptcy disease. Groupers, in, in what species? Oh, fish. Groupers, yeah. yes, yes. So farmers would grow their groupers, expensive fish, borrow money from the bank to feed them, and spend a year growing them. So all the, the investment is in the fish. This disease would affect the fish just before they went to market. So they lose everything. Made many of the farmers who became friends of mine bankrupt. So, How would it present in the fish? Oh, I called it the sleepy grouper disease because they yeah. just presented as very lethargic fish, not responding to movement, but they're still alive and they gradually just died away. Yep, so it was very rewarding because we investigated the, the disease. We found what it was, I named it, and a very proud moment when we could discover a new disease and name it. That was very rewarding to have found the virus, discover how it affected the fish and traced it and managed to transmit the virus experimentally from one fish to another. I found one in the, in the UK, and uh, that was the rainbow fry trout anemia syndrome. What do you think now though? What's for you moving forward? Well, I would like to train one or two people. To take I over like to... as fish experts? Yeah, to take over as, mm. as vets who have a special interest in aquatic medicine. I'm still looking, I've, but I'd like to, to transfer or to share some of my information. Is there a key characteristic that they should embody before embarking have, on yeah. being an aquamarine life vet? They have to dare, Ooh. dare to make mistakes, dare to subject themselves. Oh, I thought themselves. dare <laughs> to stick your arm inside a shark. 
<laughs> well, I said dare to make mistakes. Yes, that's that's included. That could be it. <laughs> yeah. They have to be willing to come out of the comfort zone, be uh, very good in talking with people, and daring to go into water, looking at how fish are in water. They have to be physically fit because you really have to get in there and participate with the farmers to understand what they go through, to catch fish with the aquarists in the oceanarium and to understand the dangers they face so that you, you don't subject them to unnecessary risks. Yep, just um, still hoping. What's your favourite animal, Dr. Fred? They'll always be the dog. That's my first love. I grew mm, up with man's dogs. Man's best friend, right, they say? Yeah, they express themselves and uh, they forgive. <laughs> I think they're the most gracious animals. Any favourite breed? I love the melanoid, and I've always wished I could keep one, but it's just too much space they require. But I worked with melanoids when I was uh, serving the army. They're the uh, ones that kind still of see... look like German Shepherdish, right? Yeah, if you imagine a German Shepherd with a sharper face and short hair and can jump from a helicopter, that's a melanoid. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dr. Fred, it's been an absolute pleasure. Didn't think it would be, given I'm a cat person. But no, oh. let's, not, let's not perpetuate that myth, shall we? No. But thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Harvey. This podcast has fur and other coverings. Is a production of SPH Radio. It's hosted and produced by Howie Lim from Money FM 89.3. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcast, and streaming on Google Home.